Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 316, The Valois Extinguished. Before I start, I need to ask you for a bit of money. Not for me, but for the Anthony Nolan charity. Anthony who, I hear you say? Well, Anthony Nolan play a big part in the lives of people like me who develop blood cancer by finding them stem cell donors, and they were important in my treatment even though my brother was kind enough to strap himself into a chair for hours and donate his stem cells to me. Anyway, the long and short is Davy, I, Gilbert, Izzy and Henry are going to walk 50 miles of the Thames path from Henley to Oxford. Davy and I are doing two legs first to make sure that my two legs are still working okay and then on the 19th of June the whole team is doing the last 23-mile slog. Davy, by the way is player of the podcast intro and singer of Shanties. I hope you will help me to repay Anthony Nolan just a little bit for what they did for me and countless others. If you are up for it, then just go to our Just Giving site at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shedcasters or go to my website or Facebook site, The History of England, where you'll find a link. And thank you in advance. Now then, This seems like a good moment to take stock. And indeed, I have received a request to give a sort of view of the arc of Elizabeth's reign. And although we are by no means at the end of Elizabeth's reign, this is a good place to do it. Because the last years of her rule have been seen in some quarters a sort of golden age. The great threat of the Armada had been seen off. A confident and daring England and her navy carry the war to Spain the iconography of Elizabeth had moved into a new stage. No longer the subject of marriage proposals, we have the glittering and victorious Gloriana, her hand laid firmly on the globe. A well-established Privy Council rules benignly, and population growth fed economic growth, trade grew especially in the city of London, and an increasingly sophisticated economy was better able to feed its people. And then there's all that literary and drama stuff with that playwright whose name I can never remember. If that is true, how did we get to this place, this golden age? And what are the salient features of the reign so far? The reign had started, of course, with the religious settlement, a highly contested settlement it was too, coming on top of the changes of Henry, Edward and Mary's reigns, contested by Catholics and by the Protestant godly, and a population confused by constant change. Many people expected the settlement to be just the first step, and yet 
Remarkably, it was not. For Elizabeth, this was her settlement, and despite all the pressures, she stuck to her view. And meanwhile, evangelising and time made the new church familiar and acceptable to the vast mass of people. While radicals continued to look for further change, yet there had been no split in the church. Puritans stayed within the new church, and Catholics shrunk to a tiny percentage of the population by the end of the reign. The same uncertainties had occurred in the political arena in the early years. What could be expected of a woman? Surely the Queen would simply accept the advice of the men on the Privy Council. Elizabeth had proved to be a difficult master to work with, but she was always involved and always determined to make the decisions. She played the game at court expertly, while the Privy Council became an effective group who, although frequently exasperated by their boss, ruled effectively, integrated with the nobility of court life. In foreign policy, so fraught and interchangeable and fed by fear of Catholic hostility, Elizabeth had been largely non-interventionist for as long as possible after a first initial foray wherein fingers had been burnt. But she was prepared to intervene in the 1580s when it became unavoidable. And it might be said that none of her decisions led to a disaster or seriously damaged her realm, something which couldn't be said for either Spain or France. And in the meantime, the Navy Royal had become an effective tool, well regarded by her enemies. So in a sense, as we reach the 1590s, the Golden Age thing maybe has some guts behind it. Looking from a political angle, Elizabeth's realm seems to be at peace with itself, social order maintained and creativity flourishing. You can, I imagine, feel a but coming. First of all, it depends where you look. Because from the perspective of ordinary people, the 1590s were nothing golden at all and were in fact a harsh decade indeed. With years of famine, falling real wages and growing poverty and crime. The dogs of war had conclusively slipped their bonds and everyone knows that pets cost a packet to maintain, cost a fortune and one look at Philip's three bankruptcies make that point very eloquently. And while Ireland appeared to have been pacified and made English at relatively low financial cost, though at massive human cost, it was about to get much hotter and much more expensive as the Nine Years' War, or Tyrone's Rebellion, depending on your perspective, made one more desperate effort to retain the independence and traditions of Gaelic lordship. So look, it does indeed feel that we are moving into the end game of Elizabeth's reign and the reality was that the last long decade of her reign almost feels like a second reign. The Golden Age thing then is in reality highly questionable and probably displays the vitality of the dodo. Partly of course throughout the 1590s there is the growing sort of fin de siècle feel Central to that was the burning question, how much longer could the Queen last? 57 in 1590, if she was, doesn't sound terribly old to us. But it was, of course, clear that she would have no heir. And so while the title lame duck monarch is unfair, Elizabeth would never be lame. 
leading members of her court started making nervous glances over their shoulders towards their likely future Scottish ruler and sending him B.A. Do. The Queen, despite her increasingly complicated attempt to maintain her appearance of youth and the now slightly disturbing fiction of courtly love, was beginning to look old. De Metz, the French ambassador in 1597, described her in more brutal terms than her courtiers would have dared to do. She kept the front of her dress open, and one could see the whole of her bosom, and passing low, and often she would open the front of this robe with her hands, as if she was too hot. The collar of the robe was very high, and the lining of the inner part all adorned with little pendants of rubies and pearls, very many, but quite small. She also had a chain of rubies and pearls about her neck. As for her face, it is, and appears to be, very aged. It is long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal, compared with what they were formerly, so they say. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. Her figure is fair and tall and graceful in whatever she does. So far as may be, she keeps her dignity yet humbly and graciously withal. Now, a French ambassador is unlikely to be a sympathetic audience, and this image needs to be leavened a little bit. Despite her age, Elizabeth had the great gift of good health and retained much of her energy. An ambassador from Württemberg gushed, She stood for longer than a full hour by the clock conversing with me, which is astonishing for a queen of such eminence and of such great age energy or not, after the Armada, Elizabeth was quickly robbed of many of the servants on whom she had relied for so long. The first was, without wanting to be melodramatic, obviously, the person that was as close to a sole companion as you can get and still be a monarch, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Through all the vicissitudes, and despite Elizabeth's fury at his marriage, they had remained close Tracy Borman gives a nice flavour of the relationship by quoting one of her last surviving letters from 1586, which is relaxed, informal, unselfconscious, unpretentious. Rob, I am afraid you will suppose by my wandering writings that a midsummer moon hath taken a large possession of my brains this month, but you must needs take things as they come in my head, their order be left behind me. Dudley had been a companion she had trusted and with whom she could to some degree relax. Soon after he had been at her side at Tilbury, Dudley struggled with illness and made for Buxton, as you do when you need to be restored in life. He wrote a letter on the way from Reichert, where there is, by the way, a fascinating church where Elizabeth had worshipped while under guard in Mary's reign. I continue still your medicine, and find that it amends much better than with any other thing that hath been given to me. Thus, hoping to find perfect cure at the bath, and with the continuance of my wonted prayer for your Majesty's most happy preservation, I humbly kiss your foot. Dudders never made it to lovely Buxton, glory of the Derbyshire Peak District, and for that I feel sorry, because there can be few better places to be. He got as far as Cornbury in Oxfordshire, as it happens, before he had to stop. And while no doubt waiting for 
the Cornbury Music Festival to begin, several hundred years later, he died on the 4th of September, 1588. Elizabeth kept to her room for days and would not come out, until eventually Burley forced his way in. And Elizabeth kept Dudley's last letter in a casket until her death. Dudley, let us call him Dudders for one last time, was buried at Warwick, and a 100-man strong procession took him there from Kenilworth. At the head of that procession was his stepson, the son of his wife, Lettuce Knowles, Robert Devereux by name, second Earl of Essex, a dashing young man we shall have occasion to meet again. One more anecdote. Dudley was, of course, married to Lettuce Knowles, and Elizabeth, as I think we have covered, had never forgiven her for marrying her favourite and banished her from court. Now that Dudley died with debts of £50,000, Elizabeth grimly called in those debts and seized Kenilworth and other properties from Lettuce's possession. Elizabeth did not like bear a grudge for more than a couple of decades. Sick transit Gloria Dudders, as Cicero was heard to mutter. Elizabeth had to deal with the loss of other people close to her as well, particularly with the death in 1589, of the fair Geraldine, a.k.a. Lady Elizabeth Fine de Clinton. They had been companions since childhood, shared intellect and humour, and the Queen used Lady Elizabeth on diplomatic missions, and her influence with the Queen was very well known throughout court, so she became a magnet for the petitions of courtiers looking for the Queen's favours. A year later, Elizabeth lost Blanche Parry too, who had remained faithfully at her side and become almost an unofficial private secretary. Other courtiers then died also, so Walter Mildmay, who we've not talked about very much actually, but he was a stalwart at court and he died in 1589. Francis Walsingham, who had suffered from recurrent illnesses since 1571, finally succumbed to one of them in 1590. Christopher Hatton died in 1591, Christopher Hatton in particular had been a favourite of the Queen and Walter Raleigh looked set to succeed him. But Elizabeth banished Walter when he seduced her maid. Instead, a new man began to appear. When Leicester died, he left no heir and so those who had relied on his patronage needed somewhere else to go and often they affixed themselves to his charismatic stepson, Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex. With the loss of both Leicester and Walsingham, it is said that the support for active intervention to support Protestantism abroad fell somewhat in favour of Burley's greater aversion to risk. Honestly, not quite sure events support this view, given that 16 years of war lay ahead, including intervention in France. And the person that survives, of course, was Burley himself. But he too had to deal with loss, namely the death of his wife, Mildred Cecil. Their relationship had clearly been very close indeed. Mildred was a powerful intellect again whose talent for Latin and Greek and her correspondence to the fellows of St John's College in Cambridge, written in Greek, revealed that she was at comfort in that world and deeply interested in classical authors. Together with her extensive charity works locally and for education in Cambridge, she and her husband clearly shared interests and supported each other. Mildred, in a letter, wrote of her happiness and, 
everlasting comfort, living with this noble man in divine love and charity, which is, you know, nice. Burley himself struggled with denial that his soulmate was finally gone. There is no cognition to be used with an intent to recover that which can never be had again, that is, to have my dear wife to live again in her mortal body. Some of the energy leaves Burley in the 1590s, but none of the shrewdness, and from under his wing emerged his political heir and successor, Robert Cecil, rather than Burley's eldest son, Thomas, about whom his father was frequently exasperated and disappointed, with the 16th century equivalent of the cry of all parents, Why can't my children be more like me? Robert married Elizabeth Brooke in 1589, and Elizabeth Brooke was a very well-connected person in the Queen's privy chamber. In May 1591, Elizabeth visited Burley at his enormous house, Tibbalds, where Burley shamelessly promoted Robert as his natural successor. Incidentally, I believe I have mentioned before now how hard Elizabeth's courtiers lobbied to have their Queen to do them the vast honour of a personal visit, to the extent even of building houses for that very purpose. Well, it was an expensive favour when it was bestowed, so this particular visit to Tibbalds cost Burley a cool £1,000. Now, you might think that's cheap at the price, and conversions of money to modern equivalents are indeed tricky, but in today's money, that could be in the region of £170,000 for the privilege of a royal visit. However, it must be said that Burley would have considered it a thoroughly satisfactory investment. Before the end of the visit, his 28-year-old son Robert had been knighted, and weeks later he would be appointed to the Privy Council. By 1596, Robert Cecil would be the Queen's private secretary, and Burley worked constantly through his son, especially when he was ill corresponding with him in a stream of letters when Burley was forced to be absent from court. Burley's influence and his control of patronage prompted his enemies to mutter of a regnum Cecilianum, rule of the Cecil, which was slightly unfair, but did in fact reflect his dominance. Given Burley and Elizabeth's supposed famed reluctance to wage war and get involved in spending money, it is ironic that war was such a dominant factor to the end of Elizabeth's reign and rather exposes the myth of Elizabeth's supposed efforts to avoid foreign entanglements, though it is true to say that her approach was very much to minimise costs where she could. So, war at sea continued the joint stock approach. There was such a feature of Elizabethan naval warfare. This was true from the first expedition following the Armada, England's own version of the Grand Armada in 1589. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, full of confidence after their victory the previous year, 
The mission was more enormous than the eponymous crocodile. 23,000 sailors and 180 ships, six of which were Dutch, so making this an Anglo-Dutch expedition. Elizabeth's objectives were to destroy the remnants of the returned Spanish armadas while they were still in port. But such a huge expedition could not be financed without accessing the pockets of private investors in the City of London. The result was a disaster. And look, for all of you good folks out there expecting a roll call of glorious victory by the near-legendary Elizabethan sailors, you're in for something of a rolling disappointment. The campaign was led by Francis Drake and a pretty competent commander called John Norris. But the problem was that, as Elizabeth herself grumpily remarked, they went to places more for profit than for service. Elizabeth's objective was not quite ignored. They spent a couple of weeks pointlessly besieging Corunia for appearance's sake and then up sticks and headed to Lisbon. The idea was that they'd raise Portugal in revolt against its horrid old oppressor, Philip II, and make a bundle by capturing Lisbon and the ships in the harbour while they did it. This Elizabeth had expressly forbidden for them to do unless there was widespread and obvious support. When John Norris landed outside Lisbon, the Portuguese essentially said, Wives and went back to whatever they were doing before, which does not fall into the category of widespread and obvious support. Norris was forced to abandon the attempt in the end, with a loss of 2,000 men to disease. There is only one main advantage to all of this. Spain had once more been shown to be impotent. Heretics with guns were walking around all over Iberia, and there didn't seem to be a blessed thing the king could do about it. Incidentally, as a wee footnote, Norris had been joined by the Earl of Essex. Essex had joined Elizabeth's court and had already attracted her attention, despite having betrayed his default setting as a bit of a loose cannon and rather wild, or maybe because he was betraying his default setting as being a bit of a loose cannon and rather wild, and also equipped with a shapely calf. To give you a flavour of the 24-year-old Essex was not a man to suffer other competing peacocks, so he conceived a great hatred of Walter Raleigh, for example, and for a 26-year-old at court, one Charles Blunt. Blunt had scored a bit of a hit with the Queen with his skill at the tilt, and so she gave him a golden chessman, which Blunt pinned to his sleeve ostentatiously. Now, of course, in the spirit of companionship, and an English attitude to fair play, you might think that Essex would share in Blunt's joy. But in fact he did not. In fact, he was distinctly cheesed off and audibly muttered, Now I perceive every fool must wear a favour. In the parlance of the 21st century freedom fighter, Blunt called him out. The result was duel, which Blunt won by sticking his rapier in Essex's thigh. Now, Essex had defied the Queen to ride pell-mell and join Drake's fleet. And defying the Queen is something to which Essex will not be a stranger. Once in Portugal, Essex had proved his physical bravery, but was over-imbued with the chivalric tradition. So, when repulsed from the gates of Lisbon, he stuck his lance in the gates, 
demanding aloud if any Spaniard mewed therein durst adventure forth in favour of his mistress to break a lance. Predictably, the response was more eye-rolling and whatevs, so Essex had to wander nonchalantly back to join the retreat of the rest of his fellows. Hopefully, this gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here in Essex. Anyway, once Plan B had again bitten the dust, Drake and Norris reverted to the tried and tested Plan C. Let's try and capture the Spanish floater. But by this stage, disease had spread in Drake's fleet and they were forced to slink off back to Blighty empty-handed. Between one-third and half of their men died, maybe 11,000 men. The Queen was livid, Drake and Norris were grilled by the Privy Council, but nonetheless the moral of this tale was that Elizabeth simply did not have the money to do the right thing, which was pretty obvious to plenty of people. The Chronicle of Bristol recorded of the disaster that this army was levied by merchants, whereas in matters of this kind princes only ought to have employed themselves, which hits the nail pretty squarely on the head. But, as we have mentioned before, I think there's no shame in punching the bruise, as Alistair Campbell once charmingly remarked, damp, poor and needy England could not afford the bills the Habsburgs and the French regularly paid out for war. So, despite the obvious disadvantages, joint stock enterprise it was. And this did indeed yield some sort of benefit, since earth and sky met to create a strategy of some sort, in trying to cut the sinews of the Spanish war machine by nicking as much silver as possible and ruining Spanish trade in the Caribbean. One key component of the approach was to hover off Iberia and try and hoover up any ships coming from the coast and, meanwhile, the treasure fleet coming into the Azores. This strategy continually failed, including the sinking of the Revenge by Spanish ships in 1591. However, a certain amount of energy and chaos was created by this joint stock approach. Between 1589 and 1591, 236 privateering English ships took 300 prizes worth £400,000. In 1592, the Madre de Dios was captured with a vast value by English budgetary standards. 80,000 quid reached the exchequer. This, however, was... After £100,000 worth of the cargo had been half-inched by said privateers and a further £60,000 distributed by the PC. But it all was a bit piecemeal. The excitement caused by the capture of just one measly little ship, the Madre de Dios, rather brutally highlights the difference in scale between English and Spanish resources. Gone now were the days of easy pickings, as Philip invested in a new fleet, a squadron of a thousand ton galleons was started straight away, the Twelve Apostles, as they were called, and within ten years of the Armada, Philip had 90 to 70 ships available for use specifically in the Atlantic. And however hard the failure of the Armada had hit Philip in the Catholic world, do not for a moment think that the hostility and resolve had been one whit reduced. As soon as the news of the Armada became obvious, Philip was advised to create a new expeditionary force that would 
sail straight to England and find a way to conquer her. Philip declared in response that we are in an open state of war, which does indeed show remarkable insight, and I shall never fail to stand up for the cause of God and the well-being of these kingdoms. And also he went to the Cortes to demand yet more money and was rewarded with agreement for a fresh tax because, they declared, if we defeat this enemy, it will end the war in the Netherlands because England provides them with the means to carry on. The army and navy you send on this campaign will aim to attack and conquer and in achieving its goal will recover past losses and the reputation of our nation. Meanwhile, William Allen had the Pope Sixtus's ear and in 1588 the declaration that Elizabeth was a bastard and schismatic and should be removed from power was renewed. It is worth noting that there was a new suspicion of a bit of leeway though. The announcement looked for Elizabeth's removal when it was practical to do so, which gave English Catholics maybe a little bit of wiggle room. In response though, Burley indulged yet again his talent for propaganda. He ordered the release of a letter from a Jesuit called Richard Lee, which spoke of the Jesuit despair at the collapse of the invasion by the Armada. It laid into William Allen good and proper about his strategies and how awful they were. And it talked of all the careful preparations by the English for their own defence should we want to try again. This was, of course, completely fake news and a total forgery by Burley. I think it's fair enough to describe Burley as a bit of a tinker. Now, although we like to focus on Elizabethan sea dogs in the finest tradition of history that hoots, in fact, most of the critical expense of fighting was spent on land warfare and in conjunction with foreign allies. The Anglo-Spanish War was fought in the Low Countries and in France as much as in the Caribbean and the Azores. And so it is to Europe that we must return. As soon as it was clear that the Gran Armada was a busted flush, the so far relentlessly successful Duke of Parma went on the offensive again, attacking the town of Bergen op Zoom in September. But hey, shock, horror, the garrison fought back and the unbeatable Parma was forced to withdraw. Yet more damage was inflicted on Spain's martial reputation. The following year, Palmer had another bad one. I mean, it started off absolutely fine and perfectly good, but by August, the curse of Spanish operations had returned. All the gains had to be abandoned as the army mutinied. Palmer, I guess, would have begun to feel a little like Sisyphus and his blessed stone at this point. Later, in 1589... Palmer was beginning to lose the trust of his king as well. But nonetheless, when Palmer suggested approaching the Dutch for peace negotiations, Philip's resolute refusal to contemplate religious toleration showed a titchy-tiny hairline crack, conceding that maybe, possibly, perhaps, if the sun was in the west and the wind from the east, he might just concede toleration just for a limited period. It was too little and it was too late. Palmer's failure and the ease with which the Anglo-Dutch forces had wandered all over Iberia and pulled up the royal Spanish trousers and revealed the feet of clay beneath had done its work on Dutch confidence. 
like Henry Cooper against Muhammad Ali or Frank Bruno against Mike Tyson, they suddenly thought they had a real chance of winning this. And fortunately, their optimism was much better founded than either Henry's or Frank's. However, despite this burst of confidence, it was events in France which would decide the fate of the war. So let us return to King Henri le Troisième de France. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the best French I can produce. By 1588, Henry III had effectively lost all authority and freedom of action and had been firmly placed in the Duke of Guise's pocket and that of the Catholic League. Under their influence, Henry had been forced to repeal religious toleration and had excluded the unfortunately Protestant Henry of Navarre from the succession in favour of Henry of Navarre's uncle, whose claim was even more distant than his. The Duke of Guise was declared Lieutenant General of France and was supreme, effectively acting King of France. Such a state of affairs was utterly intolerable to Henry III's pride, and despite having allowed himself to be pushed around, the crashing and burning of the Armada stiffened his sinews, and he resolved to imitate the action of a tiger. But what to do? Well, a couple of days before Christmas 1588, the king summoned the Guise brothers to the royal chateau at Blois. When Duke Henry of Guise arrived, expecting the due festivities and welcome, he knew that the king was with his brother, the Cardinal of Lorraine, and so off he trogged to join them. On his way to see the king, though, he was politely informed that the king would like to see him in a private room first. When he got there, he found not the king armed with a welcoming smile, but the king's bodyguard armed with less welcoming steel. The Duke of Guise was hacked to death. The following day, his brother, the Cardinal of Lorraine, was also murdered. Both were then burned and their ashes thrown into the Seine. So perish the king's enemies. Well, when news got out, I think it's fair to say that the inhabitants of Paris were mm, a little miffed, that their Catholic champion's life had been snuffed. Apparently, a 100,000 citizens carried candles in a huge procession through Paris, holding lit candles in the air as though they were at a Christopher gig with that hideous lady in red number. And then, simultaneously, they all snuffed out their candles and cried, Thus does God extinguish the Valois race! Which would be a little less usual for a Christopher concert, to be fair. Henry III was faced with the realisation that his latest policy decision could not be described as a vote winner. But, Given there was no election looming for a couple of hundred years, Henry kept his head and slipped away to Tours, there to join up with his brother-in-law, Henry of Navarre. All of this amounted to a declaration of war on the Catholic League and the French wars of religion were once more on fire, with Catholic and Protestant armies duking it out. Henry of Navarre had undoubted military flair and it was reasonably clear that the next objective was to seize Paris. By August 1589, the king was at Saint-Cloud, just outside Paris, with an army, preparing to reduce Paris to its due royal obedience. When he was there, his servants and advisers informed him that a monk called Jacques Clermont was there to give him some papers and a secret message. 
Obviously, a monk presents no threat to anyone, and so he was admitted. Henry might have been a little less welcoming had he known that Clermont had been in close communication with Catherine de Guise. Once before his king, and indicating to him that he had a secret message, Clermont asked Henry to give them a bit of privacy. Intrigued at what this secret message could be, Henry ordered his advisers to withdraw and lent his ear towards Clermont's cherry lips. He received not a message, but a knife to the guts. In some pain, Henry called his attendants, who promptly defenestrated Clermont and had his body hanged, drawn and quartered, as you do. Henry made like the Black Knight and declared that it was but a scratch. But by the following day, he was clearly heading toastwards and gathered his people around him and told them to recognise Henry of Navarre as Henry IV, their king, and then died. His army disintegrated and his supporters grieved. Meanwhile, Paris hit the party button and celebrated with some joy. It was therefore clear from this that Henry IV would have to fight for his throne. Against him was not just the Catholic League, but also the most Catholic monarch, Philip II, who had consistently bankrolled the League for years. About one million crowns between 1582 and 1587, and another two million in 1588-9. To set against this behemoth, Henry had his undoubted military flair and the support of the English minnow. Elizabeth sent him 20,000 quid in September 1589 and a contingent of 4,000 soldiers under the command of one Roger Williams. The English arrived just in time to force the League to fall back from Arc, where Henry had been under attack. Henry was now able to go on the offensive and together with the English, he inflicted a heavy defeat on the League at Ivry in March 1590 and then marched on Paris. Now this was too much for Philip. This he could not accept, not a prot as a king of France. And he realised that despite the appalling breadth of his commitments, he would now have to add another one. He wrote to Palmer. My principal aim is to secure the well-being of the faith in France and see that Catholicism survives and heresy is excluded. And so, you see it is necessary for my troops to enter France openly. On the 27th of July, Palmer left the Netherlands with an army of 20,000. On the 19th of September, he entered Paris to the delight of the Parisians and Henry was forced to withdraw. Palmer's actions were highly significant. They ensured that the war continued, for if Henry had entered Paris and been crowned, it might well all have been over there and then. But Philip knew there'd be a price to pay, and he knew also what it was. The affairs of France create obligations that we cannot fail to fulfil because of their extreme importance. And since we must not undertake too many things at once because of the risk that they will fail, and because my treasury will not allow it, it seems that we must do something about the war in the Netherlands, reducing it to a defensive footing. The war now entered a new phase. Palmer was near the end of his tether, running between the Low Countries and France, 
sticking his fingers in the dikes, as it were, to stop his conquests being swept away into the sea. The Dutch weren't super quick to respond, as it happens, but they had a very competent commander now in the form of Maurice of Nassau, William of Orange's son. So, the city of Breda was captured by the Dutch, and the Spanish were forced out of towns they still held in the northeast of the United Provinces. In 1591 and 2, Palmer did his best to hold the line in Netherlands while rushing to France to raise Henry's siege of Rouen. In the end, it was just all too much for him, and he died in November 1592 at Arras. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was continuing to send support to Henry, and in 1591 this included the brand new shiny favourite, Essex. Elizabeth had to be persuaded hard to give him his command and out of her sight, having sent more troops already under an experienced commander, John Norris. But Essex would have his day, and so he arrived for service in Normandy at the head of 4,000 troops. Elizabeth wrote a letter to Henry about Essex, which is revealing. Dazzling favourite Essex might be, but the canny Elizabeth knew what she was dealing with. And it is also, incidentally, a nice early example of the English disease of self-deprecation. If, which I most fear, the rashness of his youth does not make him too precipitate, you will never have cause to doubt his boldness in your service, for he has given too frequent proofs that he regards no peril, be it what it may. And you are entreated to bear in mind that he is too impetuous to be given the reins. But, my God, how can I dream of making any reasonable requests to you seeing you are so careless with your own life. I must appear a very foolish creature. Only I repeat to you that he will require the bridle rather than the spur. The war had entered a new phase in another sense. Although imports of silver from the New World were higher than ever, the core of Philip's domains, the Kingdom of Castile, was being reduced to a desert by the constant exactions and the impact of the war on trade. An exasperated adviser declared that the population is declining and in such a way that many reliable people who have come from various parts of the kingdom say that it is a marvel to meet anyone in the smaller villages so that sowing and harvesting are rapidly coming to an end. In March 1591, Castile, Sicily and Aragon all broke out in revolt over taxes and Philip's rather imperious imposition of unpopular viceroys. As it happens, Philip had already gathered an army to go to France and had overwhelming force available to him with which to crush the revolt. But the consequences of Philip's imprudence and refusal to scale back his commitments were bearing a fruit that would grow increasingly bitter in the following century. Meanwhile, back in France, Henry of Navarre, Protestant champion of France, was also considering a radical throw of the dice to bring an end to the conflict tearing his country apart. And we will hear how he proposes to do that next week, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys. Until then, have a fabulous time. Thanking you all for listening and so on, I feel sometimes seems a bit like wallpaper because I say it so much. So let me specifically focus on saying that reviews I get on iTunes and comments on my website are a joy to me 
and really make a difference. So, thank you for taking the trouble. OK, don't forget the Anthony Nolan 50-mile slog. Just go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shedcasters or go to the History of England website or Facebook group. See you all next week for a bit more zinging history. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.